C.S. Lewis once said, relying on God has to begin all over again every day as if nothing had yet been done. I'm constantly reminded of that truth in my own life, and not just in the big things, by the way, but even in some of the most mundane tasks. I mentioned to you recently that I'm building a house right now. We, we've, uh, I used to build houses for a living, and then I went into full-time vocational ministry, and I have not looked back, and I haven't missed building for two seconds. Uh, we've spent the last 10 years, though, living in the 768-square-foot cabin with a partially finished basement that I built for me and my wife and three kids. It's been a tremendous blessing. Uh, but with our aging parents on both sides of our families uh, who are ready to simplify their lives in this season of life, we decided to sell our cabin and build a larger home that we could all live in together. And then my wife and I would be available, of course, to help them if and when that time comes that they need extra help. So, so yay, I'm building a new house. And on the back of that house, there is a very big porch um, that's going to be a blessing that we can all enjoy. And if you know anything about building, when you frame a house and you build the roof on it, you go ahead and build the porch roofs before you build the porch deck. So the roofs stick out and you put temporary support posts to hold the roof up. And that's where we were just a few weeks ago with these temporary support posts. And it came time to put in the, the permanent posts on the house that we're going to hold up the roof. And, and the problem is lumber prices have gone through the roof and everything's over budget. And I need these massive posts to hold up this giant porch roof high up off the ground. And so I was looking at it one day and a close friend of mine was there with me and he went out without asking me and he bought all the posts for me for that porch, which is an incredible blessing. And these things are massive. They're eight by eight by 20 foot long, pressure treated wooden posts. Pressure treated is a technical construction way of saying very, 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 very heavy. These things are gigantic, 20 feet long, eight by eight. They, they weigh hundreds of pounds a piece. And so they come out and they drop these posts off and then I have to figure out how to put them up. So I call another friend who comes out with this bobcat, this, this tractor, and we, ha uh, we rig up this big metal basket on the forklifts and we strap it down so it'll hopefully stay. And then we, it's not quite tall enough, so we strap a ladder inside the basket and we ratchet it down so we can lift up the forklift in the basket on the ladder. It's all OSHA approved, by the way, no doubt. And we spend a whole day hoisting these posts up one at a time and setting them in place, bolting them at the top and the bottom into the concrete till past dark. Five posts. Took us all day, but we got it done. Beautiful. The thing is working great. So then the next step is to build the floor of the porch, the deck, which is halfway between the ground and the roof, still high up off the ground. So I hire uh, some carpenters, wonderful men um, who are wonderful carpenters and ultimately did an amazing job building my porch deck but they were there laying it out the first day and one of the workers made an honest mistake uh, but he was cutting a deep notch into the corner post that holds up the entire roof and he cut it in the wrong place and he ruined the post so it had to be replaced now god knew that day was going to happen before it happened and so it just so happened that my other friend who bought me the post bought one extra post and it was laying there on the ground so he said hey no harm no foul 
We'll build some temporary supports. We'll take that corner post out. We'll put the extra one in and everything will be okay. So we do that. We build the temporary uh, support posts and we uh, take the old post out. And then we get to the new post and it's all of these big burly construction guys, strong guys, I'm including myself in that. And we're going to pick this post up and we're going to set it in place. And so all of us pile up on the end of this thing. We're going to walk it up. And we get it about four feet off the ground, five feet off the ground, and we can't do it. We set it back down. The thing just weighs too much. So we regroup, get a different grip, try it again, again, again. And while we're doing this, there's another crew of men there working on my house, uh, the brick masons that I hired, and they're putting the brick on the house. And they're on scaffolding right there watching all of this happen. And it's a group of Hispanic guys. They don't speak English, but they can see what was going on. They're watching this unfold. And so after our fourth or fifth try, I, I called over and said, hey, guys, can you, can you come help? I need you to come here, help us lift this. And so two of them get down off of the scaffolding. And they're, not, they're kind of small guys, and they're walking over. And I'm thinking, hey, hey everybody's invited to the party here. Like, <laughs> let's bring the whole crew. And he goes, no, 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 no. Put it down. Put it down. I said, no, I, we're going to lift it up. I need you to get your friends and get under here with us. We're going to lift it up. He said, no, no, put it down, put it down. Okay, so we set the post down, and he turns to his friend, and he says, go get my lasso, literally. And so the guy runs off back to the van, and he comes back with this huge rope. And they climb up into the rafters of the porch, way up in the, in the roof, and they drape this rope over the beam that the porch is holding up the porch rafters, both ends over the beam, all the way down to the ground. And then they come back down, and they tie one end of the rope to the top of the post laying on the ground, and the two of them grab the other end of the rope, and they start to pull. And they stand the post up in about four seconds. And he looks over at me and smiles. And I said to him, do you realize the two of you are smarter than the rest of us put together? And he looked at me and he said, yes. And I turned to my carpenters and I said, I'm convinced this is how the Egyptians built the pyramids. Two Hispanic guys and a rope. It was amazing. It was incredible. The point is, look, everyday life has a way of reminding us that no matter how hard you try, how good or how gifted you may ever be, the fact is sometimes you have to rely on someone else to help you do what needs to be done. Okay? You weren't created to navigate this life without the help of other people. The fact is, you won't make it on your own. You were never supposed to. And it's like that in the kingdom of God. You can't get there on your own. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one, no one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, 6. In other words, if you want to get to God, if you want your life to become all that it was meant to be, the only way to get there is through Jesus Christ. There is no other way. Of course, uh, that seems like an obvious thing to say to a room full of Christians, and yet this one simple statement seems to elude a lot of Christians today. You have to rely on God to do what only God can do in your life. There's simply no other way to become all that he created you to be and to do. And yet again, 
although relying on God seems like it would be one of the easiest parts of being a Christian, right? To let God do in us what we cannot do for ourselves, to allow him to do his very best work in our lives. I mean, that should be something we welcome, right? Yet I think for most of us, actually relying on God continually proves to be one of the hardest parts of following Christ. Because most of the time, we'd rather rely on ourselves. Because then we control the outcome. Or at least we think we do. And as a result, throughout human history, men and women have been trying to figure out ways to get to God without relying on God without relying on him to get us there. But look, when it comes down to becoming all that God created you to be, you can't do that on your own. You need God for that. Because no matter how hard you try or how hard or how good or how gifted you may ever be, you will, listen, you're never going to measure up to God's standard for your life. You'll never be able to live up to the potential that he infused in your DNA. You will never become all that you could be under your own steam, or by your own power, or your own goodness. Which makes sense, if you think about it. You can't be good without the source of goodness working in your life, right? You can't be godly without God. I mean, now, good moral teaching may say otherwise. Religion may say otherwise, that if you try hard enough, you can be good enough to become all that God created you to be. And yet, everyone who has ever tried, including the greatest among us, has failed miserably, as we're going to see in our story today as we continue working our way through Paul's letter to the Romans. So uh, let's pick the story back up where we left off last time and see what the great Apostle Paul has to say to the church. Remember, this is written to Christians about learning to rely on God to do in us what only he can do, which, by the way, will completely change your perspective and your approach to the most challenging aspects of your life, especially if you will let it, okay? So Romans chapter seven, where we left off, we'll begin by reading the first six verses. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Uh, When Paul and the other biblical writers wrote these letters, of course, uh, they were not divided into chapters and verses, right? Just like a letter that you would write today. You just write the letter and then you send it. It's not chapter and verse. The, The point being, as helpful as it is for the purposes of study, it's always important to remember that each chapter is just a continuation of the same discussion uh, that came before it, right? In other words, each chapter isn't a standalone story or theme necessarily. They're all connected with the chapters before and after. And so with that in mind, there's no real break in subject matter between the end of Romans 6, which we covered last time, and even the chapters before that, 
and the beginning of Romans 7 here. It's a continuation of the same discussion. So you remember, if you were here, after explaining the value of the law, the fact that Paul said the law reveals sin in chapter 3, verse 20, and condemns the sinner in chapter 3, verse 19, and defines sin as transgression in chapter 4, uh, verse 15, also chapter 5, verse 13, and the fact that it brings wrath, chapter 4, verse 15, and even uh, was even added, he said, so the trespass might increase, as Paul explains in chapter 5, verse 20. In other words, Paul says, listen, there, there's great value to the law. And yet, as valuable as it is, the law reveals sin, not salvation. It brings wrath, not grace. And so after showing us the value of the law in those previous chapters, Paul says in chapter 6 that as Christians, we are no longer under law, he says, but under grace. Which, by the way, would have been a shocking thing to say to Jewish believers at the time who revered the Mosaic law. And then you'll remember from last time, Paul went on to tell us Uh, practically what that looks like in our day-to-day lives when you're alive in Christ. And so here he's expanding on that theme, our freedom from living under the law that we uh, now belong to Christ. So he says, brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. In other words, the law does not and cannot bring victory over sin and death since sin is defined and even promoted through the law, which means the only way The only way to be set free from sin and the law is to belong to Christ, to die with him and to be raised with him. And it appears, interestingly enough, that Paul isn't only uh, directing these comments here toward Jewish Christians, because if you read that passage in the original Greek, when Paul says, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives, in the ancient Greek that it was written in, the word the uh, before the word law is not there. In other words, Paul says, literally, I'm speaking to those who know law, not the law, which would be a reference to just the Mosaic law. It's a pretty good indication that Paul is including Roman law in this discussion, certainly as well as the Mosaic law, which makes sense because from the beginning, Paul makes it clear that this letter is for Jewish and Gentile Christians alike in the church at Rome. In other words, hey guys, this applies to all of you both Jews and Gentiles, because there is no authority, Jewish or otherwise, there's no system, no written code, as Paul puts it, that has dominion in the life of the Christian the way that Jesus does. Okay, what the law does is point us to the true authority in our lives, because if you're a follower of Christ, then he says you've died to the law through the body of Christ. And so uh, this flawed idea that you've all been living under, this conception of religion as law-keeping, the idea that by painstaking conformity to a code of law, you can somehow acquire merit in God's sight, Paul says that's not just wrong, it's dead wrong. You also have died to the law, so it's not even an option for you. So, so what are you saying, Paul? I'm saying stop trying. Stop trying to earn your way to God because it's never going to happen unlike every other religion in the world which are based on some kind of merit system where you earn your way to God by obeying some form of law. Christians, look, we don't even have that option. Why? Because we've died to the law. And of course, there's a finality to death which is why it's no longer an option for us. Well, okay, Paul, then how are we to live? 
to be, to become all that God created us to be. How are we supposed to live without the law? It's all we've ever known. Paul answers in the new way of the Spirit, which is the only way. We're now free from sin and the law to live in this gospel age, this new covenant era as foretold in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, some 600 years earlier, which they were well familiar with. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and they, uh, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. That's a prophecy that concerns all of us, you and me, because as followers of Christ under the new covenant, we don't live like the rest of the world, trying to perform our way to God, relying on our own abilities and effort apart from him. No, as Christians, we no longer live by the law. We live by his spirit. We're going to get into this aspect of being a Christ follower even deeper when we get to the next chapter. But listen, many of these early Christians were so used to their religious system, living according to a written code of works. The idea of dying to that and instead living by the rule of the Spirit of God, uh, that was a profoundly difficult adjustment for them to make. In fact, many of them were still not convinced when Paul wrote this letter. And to be honest, I don't think a lot of Christians today are convinced either. I say that because if you look at how Christians in our culture are trying to better their lives today, and listen, we all want to better our lives, right? Everyone does. Believers, unbelievers, it doesn't matter. Everyone wants to better their lives, to move forward, to progress in one way or another, because that's the way God hardwired us. So look, there's nothing wrong with that. But if you look at how Christians in our culture are trying to do that, to live a better life tomorrow than the one they're living today. By and large, we're pursuing all of the exact same things that non-Christians are pursuing to try and make that happen. And so our lives end up looking exactly like theirs. It's what was happening to the believers in this letter. They believed in Jesus, but they also believed they had to continue pursuing what their Jewish, or in some cases, Greco-Roman culture was telling them they would need for a better life. It was, it was a sort of first century Jewish brand or Greco-Roman brand of Christianity where they wanted a new life while still holding on to their old life, which we talked about last week. They, they believed in Jesus while still following the ways of their culture. And I can't think, honestly, I can't think of a better description of the American brand of Christianity that many people follow today. We believe in Jesus while continuing to follow the ways of the world. Why do we do that? Because we're still holding on to this dead idea that we somehow have to work our way to God and all that he intended for our lives. Or that somehow by our own good effort, we can accumulate what we need to fulfill our destiny in this world. And, and by the way, I'm not talking about having nice things. Okay, I have nice things. Most of us have nice things. There's nothing wrong with having nice things. What is wrong is when we believe that pursuing those things is what will lead us to the life we're all longing for. 
Like somehow we can work for what we need to get to where God wants us to be. It's a convenient way of not having to learn to rely on God. To rely on Jesus to get where he wants us to be. It's trying to work our way to God without relying on God to get you there. And so we put our trust in the systems of this world just like everyone else does. We look to political systems and financial systems and power systems and religious systems to make our old lives better. But listen, Jesus didn't come to give you a better life. He came to give you a new life, which is the only way that will ever truly satisfy the longing that God put inside of you when he was knitting you together in your mother's womb. The inherent need inside all of us for God that can only be satisfied by God. And yet the very thing we need the most to experience that new life is often the very thing we pursue the least. We treat our relationship with Jesus as something to believe in, but not something to actually live for. So we believe in him and we live for ourselves. We reach out to him for a new life with one hand while holding on to our old life with the other because we're not convinced we can fully rely on him. And so Paul says, listen, you can let go of this world. You can hold on to the promise of a new life in Christ with both hands because Jesus is enough to get you there. In fact, Jesus is the only way to get you there. And I'm just telling you, when you make that decision, not just to believe in Jesus, but to actually live by the Spirit, to follow Him wherever He leads you, and boy, He'll lead you some places. You better buckle up because you're in for the ride of your life because the call of Christ is a radical call to a whole new life where you leave the old life in the dust and pursue something completely new. The fact is, when it comes to following Him, listen, Jesus never called anyone to a life of moderation. You show me in Scripture. You know, when we get older, we tend to become more balanced in, in some areas of life. At least we should. We learn moderation in many areas of life. That's a good thing, how to balance work and play and relationships. It's all a part of maturing and gaining life experience. And, of course, some of us do that better than others. But when it comes to following Jesus Christ, you know there's actually no room for moderation. There's no balance there's no part of our lives where we need a little less of Jesus so that we can fit something else in and create more balance. No. And listen, it's not that we replace all of our relationships with Jesus or replace work with Jesus or stop having recreation for the sake of Christ. No, it's that he's supposed to permeate all of that all of the time, everywhere we go, as he becomes the very center of all that we are and all that we have and all that we do. So that everything, everything for the Christian is supposed to be about Jesus Christ. That's what living by the Spirit actually looks like. It's radical because you don't always know where that's going to lead you from one day to the next. And so look, forget balance when it comes to living for Jesus. Forget moderation. You just swing the pendulum all the way to Christ and let him rule over and dwell in every single area of your life as you follow his spirit wherever that takes you. Which, of course, is going to mean completely relying on him. Scary as that may seem at times, because that's when you realize you're actually not the one in control. And yet that's the only way 
to live the life you were intended to live. Corey Ten Boom once said, you may never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Let's keep reading, verses 7 through 12. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Okay, so is the law bad then? Is, is it sin? Paul says, by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. In other words, the law isn't what's wrong in me. On the contrary, the law reveals what is wrong in me. David Gusick says it this way, the law is like an x-ray machine. It reveals what is there, but hidden. You can't blame an x-ray for what it exposes. So the law isn't sin, no, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. You see, the law reveals our sin because it is God's perfect, righteous standard for our lives. As Christians, we're supposed to live by His Spirit according to his holy standard, but we cannot do that by way of the law itself. We are incapable of holiness without the spirit of Christ within us, which means, again, we must rely on him to do what? To make us holy. It's what he does for us, not what we do for him. Okay, look, there's a deep longing inside the soul of every human being, a longing for something transcendent, something beyond this world, beyond this mortal life. It's a longing for something eternal. Of course, it's a longing for God. And yet we cannot get to God without relying on God. So you understand only Jesus Christ can slake the spiritual thirst of the human soul. All other pursuits leave us wanting. All other pursuits leave us spiritually threadbare, eternally bankrupt. And this is what sets followers of Jesus Christ and apart from followers of everything else. It's not just our doctrine. It's not just our sacred scripture, and it's not just our sincere faith. What makes followers of Christ different from followers of everything else is the fact that we have the spirit of the living God living inside of us. Which brings about changes that are clearly evident in the lives of those who have, in fact, received that spirit. And listen, it has to. It has to. There's no reality where you actually receive the Holy Spirit and yet remain unchanged. There's no such thing as becoming a Christian, which always means, by the way, the Spirit of God coming and living inside of you. If you're, you're truly a Christian, the Apostle Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, Acts 2.38. When you're born again, obviously, you ask Jesus into your heart. It's not a little Jesus that comes and lives inside of you, right? It's his spirit that comes and lives inside of you. So look, there's no such thing as that happening and then you staying the same as you were before that happened. Impossible. It would be, it would be impossible, honestly, absurd to believe that you could have the living spirit of the God who created the universe enter into you 
without it fundamentally changing you. That's why Christians are different. It's not because we believe in something. Everybody believes in something. No, what sets us apart is the fact that what we believe in is not just something. It's someone, and that someone has taken up residence inside of us, fundamentally, supernaturally, irreversibly, and eternally altering our spiritual DNA. Think about it. There's no way around it. Truly born-again people are truly changed people. And those changes are so dramatic, so life-altering, and so clearly evident that they show up in how we live from day to day because we're now able to live in a way that we never could without His Spirit inside of us. And, and listen, holiness isn't about us doing something to secure a desired outcome in our circumstances in life. Although that's how most of us live. It's a works-based religion. In other words, holiness in your life doesn't guarantee that everything else in your life will turn out the way you want it to. Not this side of heaven, as much as we'd like for it to. Listen, I'm certain the Apostle Paul did not want to be stoned at Lystra for preaching the gospel or beheaded by Nero, but he was. I don't think Jesus' disciple James wanted to be executed in Jerusalem or Peter imprisoned there for their obedience to the command of Christ to spread his word, but they were. I doubt John wanted to be exiled on the island of Patmos or Stephen martyred or Andrew and Peter crucified or Philip tortured to death or James clubbed to death or Matthias burned to death or Thomas stabbed to death, but they were. Why? For what? for living according to God's holy word, his gospel. Righteous living, doing what is right is not a guarantee that everything will turn out the way you want it to, but it will bring you closer to Christ. And that's the point of holiness. Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, live a holy life, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. John 14, 23, that's the definition of relationship, closeness to Christ. Listen, holiness is primarily about drawing us closer to Jesus Christ by reflecting his life in ours. It's not about achieving some desired outcome in our circumstances, but that's how we often think about it. If I'll just be good enough, if I'll live righteously enough, if I'll do what he tells me, then, then this and this and this will happen. It's a works-based religion. Sometimes it happens. God certainly blesses us with good things in our life. But you're in for a hard day if you think doing the right thing will always get you what you desire. Right? That's why the Apostle John wrote, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. That's not how we come to know him. It's how we know we have come to know him. It's the outflow that comes out of our lives, holy living because of what he's done in us. Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God, closeness to Christ is perfected. First John 2, three through five, holiness is all about relationship. So look, you can find yourself in very difficult circumstances in life and do everything as righteously as you know to do and still not achieve the outcome you were hoping for. However, what you will find Every single time, if you honor Christ in those difficult circumstances, you will find that your relationship with him will grow deeper through it 
no matter what the final outcome of that circumstance is, which is the whole point to begin with. Okay, the truth is God will allow all sorts of things to happen in your life, even hard things, for the express purpose of drawing you closer to him because he loves you. He wants you to have a relationship with him where you learn to rely wholly on him. You see, the whole point is to stop focusing on outcomes, your circumstances, and start focusing on him by reflecting his life in yours, holy living. It's not that he doesn't care, by the way, about your outcomes. He, he most certainly does. He cares about every aspect of your life, but he cares about your relationship with him more than anything. And by the way, it is in that relationship that you will ultimately find everything you need to navigate your way through your circumstances. That's not just the best way to live your life or a different way to live your life. It is the only way to live your life when you live by the Spirit according to His perfect standard. In fact, it's a radical way to live. And it's a radically different way than how the rest of the world lives. Charles Spurgeon once said, I believe that one reason why the church has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. Let's finish the story for today, verse 13 to the end of the chapter. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. How many times has that happened in your life, in my life? For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So Paul continues the theme that the law cannot save you, that we have to rely on God for that, and he uses himself as an example. The great apostle Paul, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now listen, Paul's problem is not a lack of desire to do what is right. No, he wants very much to do the right thing. He says, I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. His problem is not a lack of desire, and also his problem is not a lack of knowledge. He says, for I delight in the law of God and my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Paul's problem is not a lack of desire and it's not a lack of knowledge. Paul's problem is a lack of power because the law gives no power. Listen, the law simply says, here are the rules and you better keep them. 
but it gives us no power to do that, to live the way we were created to live. Well, then how? How can we ever become the men and women we were created to be? How can we ever hope to live the life we were meant to live? Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thankfully, Paul answers his own question. Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, we have to rely on God. We have to learn to rely on him. And the only way to do that is to live by his spirit according to his holy standard through Jesus Christ. And so although as Christians we may never be completely without sin in this life, we're continually being transformed by His Spirit within us to the point that we desire to live lives of purity and holiness even though we fail woefully short. We we fall woefully short at times in our lives. We all know that, right? And yet by His Spirit, we have the power available to us that is needed to live the lives he created us to live. And we're gonna talk about that again in greater depth in the next chapter, but that's what Paul means when he says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. When he says I'm of the flesh, that's another word for carnal or worldly. In other words, I know that on my own, under my own power, under my own steam, I'm no different than anyone else. I'm as worldly, as carnal as the next guy. And so the only way that I will ever be different is by learning to rely on God. And so listen, if you see any difference in me, don't be impressed by me. Be impressed by Jesus in me. Because it's only through Jesus Christ that I can live the life he's called me to live. Okay, we're supposed to be different. We're supposed to be different, you and I, unrecognizable to the world, in fact. So why does it bother us when we go out into the world as we're supposed to and the world doesn't recognize us? Why does it bother us so much when people think we're weird because of what we believe or how we act or the things we stand in opposition to or the things we support that go against the flow of our culture? We see so much of that now. Yet so much of the church is caving to the pressure, cultural pressure, under the guise of being on the right side of history. Listen, I'd rather risk being on the wrong side of history than being on the wrong side of God's will for my life. Okay? Why do we feel like we have to fit in with whatever the world is up to? If we truly belong to him, we're not going to fit in. We're not supposed to. The world is not supposed to recognize us as one of their own because we don't look like anything in this world. When you belong to Jesus Christ and you live by his spirit according to his holy standard, you don't look like anything in this world. You look like him. And again, this side of heaven, of course, we're not going to get it all right all the time. Even though Paul says that he is flesh, carnal. It doesn't mean that he's not a Christian. It means his awareness of his own carnality is proof, in fact, that God is indeed working in Paul's life as Paul learns to rely on God, imperfect, messy as it is. We're all to be learning to rely evermore on him. Martin Luther says, that is the proof of the spiritual and wise man. He knows that he's carnal and he's displeased with himself. Indeed, he hates himself and praises the law of God, which he recognizes because he is spiritual. But the proof of a foolish carnal man is this, 
that he regards himself as spiritual and is pleased with himself. Look, I know that being self-reliant is one of the highest ideals in our culture. I know that. The problem is self-reliance often stands in direct opposition to total reliance on God. So look, making your own way in this world, as impressive as that may be to this world, it's not the way to impress God or ultimately live the life he created you to live. No, the only way to do that is to learn to rely wholly on him. And so as good as it may be, look, as good as it may be to work hard, to be gifted, to be morally or religiously disciplined, that's fine. As long as you recognize that at the end of the day, no matter how hard you try, no matter how religious you are, no matter how gifted you may ever become, you cannot live the life God created you to live by your own power or under your own steam. You cannot make it on your own. The good news is, when you belong to Christ, you don't have to. Let's pray.